Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Taming the Shrew podcast. You know, I know our podcasts have been a little bit sporadic here, especially over the winter time, but we have a great lineup planned for you guys in the uh, upcoming spring here. First today will be a Journal Club breakdown talking about uh, pneumonia uh, and a couple of articles that were recently published in the literature, kind of gauging the severity of pneumonia. How do we do that as emergency providers? How do we determine who may need more aggressive antibiotics, who uh, may need more intensive resources, who's more likely to die uh, for patients with community-acquired pneumonia? And then upcoming next month, we'll have a series of podcasts as a recap for our uh, III discussion that occurs here within our residency on our Slack channel, uh, looking at a series of different uh, pathologies and patient cases. I hope that's going to be uh, fun and interactive. And then uh, going forward as well, we'll have our QIKT series with uh, endocarditis and epistaxis, uh, as well as a couple of other additional journal club uh, breakdowns. So again, really looking forward to the spring and summer and a little bit of increased frequency of podcasts coming forward to you. So without further ado, let's get to Jason Nagel and his review of different scoring systems looking at severity in community-acquired pneumonia. All right. Hi, everyone. My name is Jason Nagel. I'm one of the third-year residents here at the University of Cincinnati Emergency Medicine Program. Uh, myself and our uh, my co-residents, we selected a couple papers for Journal Club this quarter uh, looking at a common disease process that we see in the emergency department, pneumonia, specifically community-acquired pneumonia and how we could better determine the the level of care needed for patients that we are admitting to the hospital. Uh in discussion with each other, we felt that this is an important topic as we've had those patients, those sneaky sick patients that end up needing a higher level of care once they're admitted, or those patients that just need a little tune-up and maybe are able to go home after a day or two. And those patients might be better served in a uh, CDU, which is our observation unit type setting. I'm going to get things kicked off here today talking about... um, specifically different scoring systems uh, from a paper uh, from our colleagues down under. So this was from the uh, Emergency Medicine Australasia Journal from uh, 2018. So pretty recent paper by uh, Williams et al. Title of the paper was Utility of Community-Acquired Pneumonia Severity Scores in Guiding Disposition from the Emergency Department, Intensive Care or Short-Stay Unit. So uh, to summarize this article, it was a single-center observational study in an urban, academic, high-volume tertiary care center in Brisbane, Australia. The data used in this study was gathered in a prospective manner from patients admitted to the hospital from the emergency department. However, the data analysis was performed retrospectively. Essentially, what they did is they took patients that they had already admitted to the emergency department for some infectious reason over a pretty prolonged period of data gathering, which allowed for seasonal variation and volume variation. And of those, applied criteria to identify people who eventually had the diagnosis of a community-acquired pneumonia. Their requirements for this were a lower respiratory tract infection and a consolidation on chest X-ray. The outcomes of this cohort was monitored over their observation period, and they identified two important endpoints that um, they wanted to monitor in these patients. Endpoint number one was whether or not they required ICU level of care. This includes either admission to the ICU, intubation, pressors, or experience a 30-day mortality. 
The second endpoint that they were monitoring was for discharge within 48 hours from initial admission. Using the prospectively gathered data, six different community-acquired pneumonia scores are calculated retrospectively for these patients. These six scores were the pneumonia severity index, the CURB-65, both of which are from the United States, CORB and SMARTCOP, both of which are from Australia, the IDSA minor criteria, which is additionally from the United States, as well as the Kirkso score coming from Spain. Thresholds for severe pneumonia, as well as mild pneumonia, were set within these scores. These correlated to their two outcomes that they wanted to monitor. For example, they used the common CURB-65 score of greater than or equal to 3 to analyze their, its predictive value for severe outcomes, which again was ICU-level care or 30-day mortality. They then used predetermined thresholds for minor criteria for pneumonia to see if that was predictive for their other outcome of discharge within 48 hours. For example, they set a threshold of CURB-65 equal to zero to see if that predicted likelihood of discharge within 48 hours. Applying these diagnostic accuracy statistics, they are able to make some evaluations of the different pneumonia severity scores. From their data, they are able to identify that CURB-65 as well as CORB facilitated identification of patients at high risk of requirement for ICU due to their high specificity. CORB with a specificity of approximately 93% and CURB-65 of 94%. Meanwhile, SmartCop and Kirkso showed optimal sensitivity for possibly ruling out severe pneumonia. Unfortunately, none of the six community-acquired pneumonia severity scores showed appropriate test characteristics to identify patients that might be amenable to discharge within 48 hours. Overall, I think this was a rather ambitious study that tried to answer some fairly important questions for us as emergency providers. While the disposition of patients at the extreme ends of the spectrum when it comes to pneumonia, those healthy, walking, no comorbidities, and easily treated with outpatient oral antibiotics are easy to identify, it's also quite easy to identify the crashing, septic, elderly, in need of pressures and possible intubation. It's those sneaky sick people, as well as those looks pretty well people, that having a more objective way to analyze their likely clinical outcomes could aid in our identification of the best level of care for them, both for better patient outcomes as well as for cost-saving metrics and improvement in throughput through our hospital system. The conclusions that this paper is able to make regarding the specificity of CURB-65 in particular, I feel reinforces standard of practice throughout many hospitals, recognizing that a high CURB-65 or CORB score for our Australian partners helps predict possibility of severe disease in our patients. It would have been nice if they were able to identify a pneumonia scoring system that helped predict early discharge within 48 hours, as this could be useful in determining patients that might be amenable to a CDU or observation-level admission. Of note, all the patients used in this study were already admitted to the hospital, so none of this information could necessarily be applied to patients in the emergency department in which you're trying to determine whether or not they're safe to, to be discharged home. There are some critiques that I'd like to mention about this study. First off, I'd like to mention the generalizability of this. Brisbane, Australia has a quite different population than what we see here in Cincinnati and probably different than a lot of academic tertiary care centers within the United States. On average, they are healthier, 
they have less comorbidities, and they're wealthier. In addition, Australia has a universal access healthcare system as well as near-complete coverage of pharmaceutical, as well as near-complete access to pharmaceutical insurance, allowing better access to care of their patient population. When you dive into the statistics of the patients themselves, they also appear to be different than the average American. Looking at their overall mortality rate of 2%, this is much lower than what we see throughout various studies looking at the U.S. population. Mortality rate for admission of community-acquired pneumonia in the United States ranges from approximately 6% up to nearly 20%. So either double or, t- or a tenfold increase compared to this Australian population. There are also some specific critiques regarding their methodology. For example, their exclusion criteria appear to be quite w- rigorous in some regards. Patients were excluded not only for predictable reasons such as immunosuppression, um, recent cancer diagnosis, use of chemotherapy, HIV, but also if they are presenting from a nursing home or if they had any history of IV drug use. Of note, one of the pneumonia severity score systems that they use, the PSI, specifically uses nursing home status as a criteria in their scoring system, reducing the ability to accurately analyze PSI in this study. There was also an issue with missing data, as this data was prospectively gathered, but retrospectively analyzed. Specifically, pH values and ABG values were missing from multiple scoring systems. The writers did try to address this using multiple imputations of each of the possible values and reportedly demonstrated no change in the primary analysis outcomes, which is reassuring. However, having that raw data would lead me to have more faith in the outcomes of those specific studies. Finally, I'd like to mention that there were a fair amount of unmeasured possible confounders in this study. While objective data such as SpO2, respiratory rate, and heart rate are, of course, important in predicting the clinical outcomes of our pneumonia patients, there are a large number of social characteristics that may affect our decisions in what is best for these patients. This could include homelessness status, their access to follow-up care, history of substance abuse that is not IVDU, as well as their baseline functional status, as well as their access to either family or neighbor help at home. As we know, these factors have a large weight in our decision and management of our patients, and it would have been beneficial to know at least the baseline characteristics of the patients enrolled in this study. So in summary, this was an ambitious study that looked at important questions facing us in the emergency department, both for care of our patients as well as managing our resources and determining the appropriate disposition of patients with community-acquired pneumonia that are being admitted to the hospital. This re-demonstrated that CURB-65, a scoring system that we are quite familiar with in the United States, as well as CORB, which is commonly used in Australia, are great tools to determine which of our patients that are already admitted to the hospital might require a higher level of care, such as step-down or even ICU status. Unfortunately, none of the six study community-acquired pneumonia severity scores were able to accurately predict the patients that might be best served in observational units due to a likelihood of being discharged within 48 hours. Hopefully, this paper can serve as a launching point for additional studies that further investigate this question in the emergency department. All right, let's shift gears here a little bit, and let's focus a little bit on the treatment aspect of patients, not just the disposition. So when we treat patients with community-acquired pneumonia, obviously, they need antibiotics. But what antibiotics should we choose? Well, certainly, local antibiograms will play into it, and local resistance patterns will play into it. Uh, but also a number of patient factors will play into the patient's risk for having drug-resistant pathogens. Now, formerly, 
patients who met the criteria for what was called healthcare-associated pneumonia were given more aggressive antibiotics, typically vancomycin and something along the lines of cefepime or zosin, depending on what your institution had available to you and your preference. However, the criteria that went into defining what was healthcare-associated pneumonia and what patients were at risk for drug-resistant pathogens were somewhat blunt in nature. And so the authors of this study that we're going to take a look at now looked at, in a more rigorous fashion, defining those characteristics which do portend a higher risk of drug-resistant pathogens for patients presenting with community-acquired pneumonia. And to lead off this discussion, Dr. Suez Owens, PGY3 here at University of Cincinnati Department of Emergency Medicine. All right, so the next study published by Webb et al. looks at the derivation and, and multicenter validation of the drug resistance in pneumonia clinical prediction score. Um, for a little bit of background, in 2016, there were new IDSA guidelines published that established new treatment recommendations for hospital-acquired and ventilator-acquired pneumonia, and perhaps more notably abolished the term of HCAP, or healthcare-associated pneumonia, which had been used to identify patients at risk for drug-resistant pathogens. Unfortunately, as the new CAP guidelines have not been published, there is not new guidelines to identify patients that are at higher risk for drug-resistant pathogens. The term HCAP was actually incepted in the 2005 IDSA guidelines, but there have been multiple studies that show that the identified risk factors for HCAP are nonspecific, and there have been multiple studies and scoring systems derived since that have looked to find a more specific way to identify these patients at risk for drug-resistant pathogens. Ultimately, the end product of this study was the creation of the DRIP, or Drug Resistance in Pneumonia Score. Uh, this score was created in three parts. So first, uh, the research group uh, completed a literature review that looked at all of the risk factors um, shown in multiple studies to be significant for patients at risk for pneumonia due to drug-resistant pathogens. These risk factors included prior antibiotic use, prior hospitalization, residents in a long-term care facility, chronic underlying lung disease, immunosuppression, chronic kidney disease, infusion therapy, poor functional status, aspiration risk, diabetes, pneumonia severity, cerebrovascular disease, cognitive impairment, prior colonization with a DRP or drug-resistant pathogen or MRSA, gastric acid suppression, and the presence of an indwelling catheter. Once these risk factors were assessed and the DRIP score uh, was created, the risk factors were applied to logistic regression model in the derivation cohort uh, that we will talk about in a little bit. These are a set of patients from a previous pneumonia study with biological diagnosis of pneumonia, and each risk factor was assessed for its contribution to the model and this resulted in the clinical prediction score or the DRIP score. The DRIP score was then prospectively validated in an observational study that uh, looked at how the DRIP score compared to the HCAP score, as well as six other scoring systems in terms of specificity, sensitivity, and reduction of broad-spectrum antibiotic use. Something I think it's important to talk about is how this study defined pneumonia in creating its scoring system. Uh, pneumonia was defined as two clinical signs or symptoms that could include temperature less than 36 or greater than 38, tachypnea, hypoxia, sputum production, and leukocytosis, plus radiographic evidence of a new parenchymal opacity or cavitation. There were two cohorts used in this study to derive the score. First was the, der the derivation cohort, which was made up of 213 patients with microbiological confirmation of pneumonia pathogen enrolled from multiple hospitals in Utah from 2011 to 2012. The mean age of these patients was 63.1 years old, with the primary comorbidity being chronic underlying pulmonary disease. Of these patients, 25% were determined to have a DRP. 
In the validation cohort, there, this was created from 218 patients from four hospitals in four different geographic regions across the United States with a mean age of 65.2 and their primary comorbidity also being chronic pulmonary disease. The DRP rate in these patients was higher at 33%, and of note, 49.5% of these patients met criteria for HCAP. In general, it would seem that the validation cohort is a sicker cohort than the derivation cohort. Now we will kind of define how the DRIP score was defined, and this was defined with major and minor risk factors. So major risk factors were worth two points, and these included antibiotic use within 60 days, residents in a long-term care facility, tube feeding, and prior infection with DRP within the last year. Minor risk factors, which were worth one point, included hospitalization within 60 days, chronic pulmonary disease, poor functional status, gastric acid suppression, home wound care, and MRSA colonization. A score that was greater than or equal to four signified high risk for DRP organism causing a pneumonia and would indicate need for broad-spectrum antibiotics. And looking at the derivation cohort, the DRIP score when compared to the HCAP scoring system was significantly more sensitive with a sensitivity of 0.76 for DRIP score and 0.36 for HCAP. When the DRIP score was assessed for appropriateness, the antibiotic regimen suggested by the DRIP score was appropriate for the organism recovered in 87% of cases. In terms of the validation cohort, this was also noted to be significantly more sensitive and specific than the HCAP score with a sensitivity of 0.82% and a specificity of 0.81%. The DRIP score was also determined to be more accurate when compared to HCAP for identifying patients with a DRP. Uh, The DRIP score had an accuracy of 81.5% versus the HCAP score was 69% for a p-value of 0.005%. If the DRIP score had been used to affect antibiotic use in these cases, it would have decreased unnecessary antibiotic use by 46% without increasing the number of patients that were overtreated by broad-spectrum antibiotics based on microorganism that was recovered. The study does have multiple limitations, though. The score was derived only from admitted patients with a microbiologic diagnosis. It is uncommon in most practice patterns to obtain a respiratory pathogen in every patient that's being admitted for pneumonia. The fact that a microbiologic diagnosis was obtained indicates that the patient was likely sicker than the general ED pneumonia population. Another limitation of this score is that there was no spectrum for severity of COPD within the DRIP score. Thus, any level of COPD gets you the same number of points, whether you're oxygen-dependent, on chronic steroids, on chronic antibiotics, or have underlying structural disease. Another limitation of this study is that it could not uh, elucidate some of the factors that had been evaluated by other studies, such as the effect of ICU admission on risk for DRP or how immunosuppression impacts DRP infection. Notably, this study was also only done using patients that were being admitted to the hospital for pneumonia and not patients that were being discharged from the emergency department. Thus, it cannot be used as a discharge tool to decide who should be admitted versus who can be discharged or who is appropriate for outpatient versus inpatient antibiotics. All in all, I think there are multiple takeaways from the study and ways to use the study effectively in the emergency department. It has been shown in multiple studies that the HCAP criteria are nonspecific and can result in overuse of broad-spectrum antibiotics. In the era of antibiotic stewardship, a better score is needed to determine the risk for DRPs, and that can be satisfied using the DRIP score. 
Um, the DRIP score has been shown to be more specific, more sensitive, and to decrease use of broad-spectrum antibiotics in the appropriate patient population. It is important to note, though, that while the DRIP score is better able to identify patients at risk for DRPs in the admitted population, it cannot be used to influence discharge planning, and there is a significant risk for undertreatment of patients with severe COPD but no other risk factors, as the scoring system for COPD is binary and does not take into account spectrum of disease. All right, let's shift our focus one more time here, and let's return back to the question of how severe is this particular patient's illness that's presenting with community-acquired pneumonia? What is their risk of, of death or significant morbidity? You know, certainly we have a number of scoring systems that can aid in this, as we already have heard, but what if we could send a biomarker that would portend or predict a higher mortality for patients? And the authors of the study that we're going to take a look at next turn to the, the somewhat dirty biomarker of b natriuretic peptide and ask the question, how well does this predict mortality in patients with community-acquired pneumonia? And so to lead off this discussion... And to take us home, we have Dr. Michael Spigner, a PGY3 here at University of Cincinnati. So this was a study investigating the utility of BNP or B-type natriuretic peptide as a biomarker of community-acquired pneumonia severity. The study was performed at Fuxing Hospital in Beijing, uh, and these results were published in the World Journal of Emergency Medicine back in 2015. So previous research on this subject indicated that natriuretic peptide levels were significantly increased in patients who had severe sepsis and septic shock, and it was hypothesized that uh, BNP might be used as a reliable indicator of sepsis-induced myocardial inhibition, as well as the accompanying pro-inflammatory cytokine state. A pilot study was actually performed prior to this study in which they found that the BNP accurately predicted the severity of community-acquired pneumonia, so that drove the hypothesis that it could hold some promise as a biomarker. Uh, in this particular study, the researchers enrolled about 200 adult patients with suspected community-acquired pneumonia from their emergency department in Fuxing Hospital between 2011 and 20, 2012. Uh, this included an equal distribution of males and females, and the age range was wide, encompassing people between 18 and 96 with a mean age of 81 plus or minus 10. Of note, the patients in the study um, uh, were uh, excluded if they had a history of heart failure, coronary artery disease, renal failure, end-stage renal disease, uh, cirrhosis, hypertensive heart disease, pregnancy, pulmonary hypertension, essentially a variety of other medical conditions that might confound the results. Um, this decision was uh, basically made to limit those confounders. Um, and then within that population of people that they did include, this particular uh, study looked at subgroups of people who were high risk and low risk, as well as those who survived versus those who did not survive. So the definition of community-acquired pneumonia was the presence of an infiltrate on the chest radiograph with signs and symptoms consistent with pneumonia. Um, so these might include the presence of fever or leukocytosis or leukopenia on the labs. Um, these enrolled patients had their laboratory and hemodynamic parameters measured once they were enrolled, and they actually all had an echocardiogram within 24 hours. So even if they didn't have known heart failure, this was one way that the researchers would be able to uh, find out after the fact whether or not there were confounders with the BNP. The BNP assay itself was a quantitative point-of-care laboratory test using a pretty reliable chemiluminescent immunoassay. So in looking at these patients, the researchers discovered that 27% of their patients fell into a low-risk uh, group using the pneumonia severity index, or PSI. 
and the remaining 72% were in the high-risk group. So a little bit of disparity there was certainly weighed towards the sicker patients. It was discovered that there was a rise in the BNP between every group in the pneumonia severity index. Um, so in other words, uh, there was an increase in BNP that was statistically significant going from a PSI class 1 to a PSI class 2, um, as well as from a 2 to a 3, a 3 to a 4, and so on and so forth. The subgroup analysis that split the low-risk and the high-risk groups found the same conclusion. And so um, because the strength of this correlation was pretty respectable with a correlation coefficient of nearly 0.8, it was felt that the BNP was uh, a reliable way to discriminate those patients that were at higher risk from those who were lower. the researchers ended up generating a receiver operator characteristic, or ROC, curve, and the area under the curve for pneumonia severity was actually 0.95, so it performed very well, um, using a cutoff of 125 picograms per ml. So that was a sensitivity of 89%, a specificity of 95% for severe pneumonia with a BNP cutoff of 125. And then finally, when they looked at the subgroup of survivors versus non-survivors, of which uh, in their study, about 17% of their patients ultimately died, they saw that there was also a statistically significant difference in BNP between those who survived and those who didn't. In this particular case, they identified an optimal cutoff of 299 picograms per milliliter for the risk of mortality. So the researchers uh, conceded that the BNP performed um, actually very comparably with the widely used PSI score, which we're all familiar with. Uh, But the PSI score being a little bit more complex and requiring more data points is a little harder to implement in the emergency department setting. They particularly cited another study that showed that only 70% of patients with community-acquired pneumonia had their classification by PSI determined while they were in the emergency department. So the idea was that the BNP might supplant the PSI as a biomarker of severity that would be much easier to obtain. Um, So essentially, the conclusion of the authors was that in the absence of comorbidities, you could consider inpatient treatment of community-acquired pneumonia when the patient's BNP is greater than 125 picograms per ml. And then a higher level of inpatient care, whether it be step-down or ICU, be considered when the BNP is greater than 300 because of the correlation with mortality. All right, folks, that'll do it for this episode of the Taming the True podcast. Again, look for us in the future in the coming months for a lot more podcast content as well as content on the website. Thanks. See you later.